Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Let's bowl, let's bowl, let's rock and roll. Happy birthday to you. Does that feel good? Happy birthday to me. <laughs> We're talking about Greece too. <laughs> After a long period where, honestly, I thought we were going to talk about this one before the first one, but shit happens, and now we're doing them in chronological order, so how about that? Yeah, we were absolutely planning on doing Grease 2 first, but then all of you maniacs on Patreon, who I love so very much, got us to our first stretch goal, which meant that Grease uh, came first. So if you have not listened to our Grease episode, uh, it's a lot longer, it is a lot more complicated <laughs> than this one, um, you know, maybe give that one a listen and come back, or if you're just like, nah, I don't need that... We're happy to have you because we are going to celebrate the best movie ever. That is dramatic, but I I love this movie. I love it a lot. Yeah, you really don't need to watch Grease 1 to understand Grease 2. You really don't. Like, anything you've absorbed about Grease through cultural osmosis, like, you're good. You're ready. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, Harmony, how were you introduced to the masterpiece known as Grease 2? Similar to a different rock and roll period piece we actually just covered on the Patreon, That Thing You Do, uh, I watched Grease for the first time at the bar that I worked at because one of my friends at the bar, Katie, was a huge Grease 2 fan. Uh, Before that, though, my understanding of Grease 2 was that it was the bad one, that it was like a a bomb and way underperformed and everyone hated it. And I think for a period of time... That was true, mm-hmm. or at least that was like the popular opinion. It still is the popular opinion. Yeah. Let's be real here. Yes, but I think things are swinging back, and there are very vocal Grease 2 defenders in a way that I don't think there were for a few decades. That is very true. Uh, Grease 2, just to like put all the cards on the table, is largely considered to be one of the worst sequels ever made. It did not perform well at the box office. (laughs) That's the thing is like, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying in terms of the cultural conversation, that is what a lot of people think of when they think about Grease 2. Dude, I defend Jaws the Revenge. I'll admit that's a way worse sequel. All of the Jaws movies are way worse sequels than this. Oh, no, I agree completely. But the reason it gets that reputation is because Grease 1 was such a just absolute pop culture powerhouse and made so much money that there was no way for anything to be able to survive with that reputation. Like, that's ridiculous. No, Grease 1 made like $300 million, which is like over a billion when adjusting for inflation. And this made like 
10 million dollars yeah it like did not succeed very well and because of that people thought that it was awful it got terrible reviews people hated it and that has sort of been the film's established legacy um obviously it stars maxwell caulfield and uh michelle pfeiffer and michelle pfeiffer did scarface the year after this and fully almost did not get the job because her previous theatrical credit was Grease too which is I have a lot of feelings about. Uh, I think that's very rude because she is outstanding in this movie. Um, But that is neither here nor there. This movie has a terrible reputation. And I like to pride myself as being like the self-proclaimed queen of dismissed cinema. This is the type of movie I'm talking about when I talk about dismissed cinema. Mm -hmm. Something that a lot of people have just sort of universally believed is really bad, even if they've never even seen it, or because they allowed themselves to be influenced by the popular conversation and the popular opinion, rather than thinking for themselves. I love Grease 2, and I have loved Grease 2 since I was a very, very small child. Okay, well, tell me about your experiences discovering and appreciating Grease 2 then. Uh, I got it on VHS. <laughs> of course you Because did. it was very, very cheap to buy because nobody wanted it. Yeah. So my mom got it for me, and I watched it, fell in love with it, and watched it nonstop. I watched this way more than I watched Grease. I loved it. I thought it was funnier. I thought the... Songs were catchier. I love the choreography, and I loved Stephanie Zanoni. I thought she was the coolest person in the world, and I still kind of do. So I became very much obsessed with it, and it wasn't until I got older that I realized other people don't like this movie. And it was shocking to me, because I'm like, "What what are you talking about? You don't like this movie? This movie's amazing. And most of the people that I knew who had seen it saw it during reruns, because this movie did get played on basic cable a lot. Anything that bombed or underperformed or would inevitably end up developing a cult following probably because of TV reruns. They're like the cheapest things to license. Yeah, Paramount was doing anything they could to make their money back on this. Yeah, and as opposed to getting like, I guess, other cheap things that nobody actually wants to watch, there is at least some demand for people to watch Grease 2 over and over again as opposed to, I don't know, something no one's ever heard of, fucking... The Poseidon Adventure 2. <laughs> Isn't that just a retread that's really bad? They didn't show that on TV very often. I don't know. I've never seen it. I have no idea. Yeah. But this movie is also one that holds the distinction in my household of being one that was actually purchased for itself and was not just recorded off the TV by my grandmother, uh-huh. which was a good majority of the movies that I saw growing up. Uh, if they were not rented from the video store, they were absolutely recorded off of HBO by my grandma. And... um with the exception of like clamshell movies my mom bought for the daycare, there were not a lot of movies that were purchased specifically for me. Mm-hmm. And this was one of them. And I loved it then. I love it now. And I will staunchly defend this movie because this is a movie that does require championing because the amount of people that just assume this movie is bad based on its reputation is absurd. And I, I'm glad that there is sort of this kickback recently in the last couple of years where people are like, wait, no, Grease 2 is actually really fun. And it, in a lot of cases, a lot of people believe it to be the superior Grease film, myself included. We have been able to find each other thanks to the internet. Uh, similarly to the way that Jennifer's body has been recontextualized, I think people are starting to do the same thing with Grease 2. And that is a relief because I hate that this movie is celebrating a 40th anniversary this year, and it's only like now that people are finally understanding it for what a just brilliant camp masterpiece that it is. And I am very excited to dive more into that. 
Uh, listeners, we're actually going to break our normal format a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interview BJ a little bit later in the episode about some of her feelings and opinions on Grease 2 specifically, and I'm looking forward to that. But before we get to that, BJ, do you want to do a, a little a little paperwork, a little a little housekeeping? Friends, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. This announcement is for our listeners back home in Cleveland, Ohio. Mix Juneteenth, a Black and Queer Liberation Celebration, is back. Taking place on Saturday, June 18th from noon to 6 p.m. at Black Punks Press, 4701 Perkins Avenue, Cleveland, Ohio. Mix Juneteenth will feature live music, drag performances from local talent, art, free community, and harm reduction resources, local vendors, food, and educational workshops. For those that don't know, Juneteenth is a holiday for reverence, remembrance, and celebration. Through intentional planning and organizing, Mixed Juneteenth will capture the spirit of Juneteenth holiday by providing a liberatory space that adheres to a black, queer, feminist praxis that centers abolition, community, solidarity with all oppressed communities, and anti-bigotry. Mixed Juneteenth is a space that explicitly promotes an environment of respect, civility, and liberation that is free of harassment and police presence. Mixed Juneteenth is a free event with a suggested donation of $7 and $10 for non-black individuals. Pay up. No one will be turned away for inability to pay, though. Proceeds will be used to compensate performers and offset the cost of the event. Tickets can be reserved at https colon backslash backslash linktree slash Mixed Juneteenth. And remember, Linktree is L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E backslash mix Juneteenth. I gotta say, the uh, the announcement jingles in this one, not nearly as catchy as the original Grease. <laughs> um, I'm personally a big fan of Dune, 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 because then she drops the uh, xylophone. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> All right. So for those who have never seen Grease 2, I am going to give you a Fandango synopsis. It's it's a pretty okay one. Stephanie Zanoni, Michelle Pfeiffer, is the leader of Rydell High School's Pink Ladies, a gang of girls who are counterparts to the school's group of greasers called the T-Birds. Stephanie is tired of her relationship with top T-bird Johnny Nagarelli, Adrian's med, so she breaks up with him and quickly catches the eye of English exchange student Michael Carrington, Maxwell Caulfield. Hoping to win her over, Michael tries to overcome his nerdy ways while holding off the jealous Johnny. How do you feel about that synopsis? That's accurate. Okay. I think it's very <laughs> accurate. I mean, obviously, this is not going to let us know that this is an infinitely campier and a bit edgier than the original Grease, but in terms of the story beats, that's accurate. 
Home stretch. <laughs> My old man wants me to go to junior college after grad. Yeah? Nerd <laughs> junior college. Hey, what are you gonna do, Johnny? Sleep. Nah, I mean, what are you gonna be when you grow up? A burden on society. <laughs> so, obviously, this movie is coming out uh, about four years after the original Grease, um, because they mm -hmm. originally wanted to go straight into a movie about, like, summer school, and then it exploded so big that they're like, oh, we don't want to rush into this. Yeah. So then they waited for a couple of years, and then it came out in 1982, which, unfortunately, I don't think did this movie any favors. Um, no. So I'm curious <laughs> if you could paint a little bit of context for us what was happening right around the time. So 1982, uh, this is not the first movie we have done from 1982. We've also done Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Another film that's been appreciated for its significance and being ahead of the curve in years that followed far more than at the time. Similarly to Grease 2, it's also not indicative of what else is going on at the time. Because it's also a period piece, too. So. That, that, too. So if you were to look at the other teen fair that come out, uh, this is right at the start of what we would see for the next uh, eight to ten years of, like, the 80s teen fair. Mm -hmm. I think that we can pretty comfortably point to uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High for building the formula of what we would establish as an 80s teen movie. Oh, for sure. Regardless of gender. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, a lot of teen fair were more so uh, raunchy sex comedies. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still were having them throughout the decade, but this is when we were starting to show that there are other ways to tell teen stories. Yes, we were, we were diversifying it a little bit. Like, we've also done uh, The Last American Virgin, which is also a sex comedy, but it's got a lot of heart to it. Mm -hmm. And that did not exist uh, in, like, Animal House or any of the Porky's movies. Right. As just a quick example. So, there's not a lot of big releases. There's some slashers. There's some lower budget teen fare, but... Fast Times is really, like, the big thing as far as, like, what this period of the 80s looks like. Totally. But two other things I want to take a looky-loo at are the musicals of the time. Mm-hmm. By 1982, I think that we were um, kind, of, kind of past the 70s as far as, like, a teen audience, who is obviously the key demographic that they're trying to capture with Grease 2. Mm-hmm. And similarly to in, like, 1992... When grunge took over and everything about the 80s and big hair and big dumb ballads was the most uncool thing for teens at the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what we're getting here with Grease, where some of the musicals that are getting released in the uh, first year or two of the 80s are like Fame, Xanadu, Annie, like not exactly cool films, not exactly. I mean, and Xanadu is straight up that is a disco musical. It is, and it's Olivia Newton-John, so she's just continuing to do a version of kind of what she was doing with Grease. And we're, I think we still hate disco, mm -hmm. and so the association of like the, the the degrees of Kevin Bacon that we have, where it's like Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta, disco, Grease. Grease too. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably burned in people's brain a little bit of being like, oh, this is hokey. This is lame. We don't like this. Just yeah. like at the jump. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a lot of stuff working against it beforehand. And one of the main things too 
is that Greece too, because they waited for so long and they really weren't going to get a lot of the original people back at this point because mm-hmm. they've all gone on to do bigger and better things for the most part. Sure. They used a cast of almost exclusively unknowns. Mm-hmm. And the people that do come back are people who play teachers or you have Eugene. Also, that guy's a sex pest. <laughs> Go, he can fuck off into the sun. Uh-huh. Um, you have Frenchie that comes back. You have Craterface. Like, that's what you've got. Mm-hmm. Everybody else has graduated. They've yeah. done other things. Yeah. So stepping away from musicals, I do want to focus on music real quick. Okay. Which is that at the end of the previous year, we had the debut of MTV. MTV obviously would come to define the 80s more than any other decade it came to be associated with. Correct. I think that Greece being a period piece probably did it no favors because we are now in a, a post Gary Newman's Cars, a post Human League, a post Flock of Seagulls. Like we are firmly in like new wave being the current teen trend. Mm-hmm. We're looking to the future. We like synthesizers. We like big dumb hair, but not in like a, a 50s way, more in like an absurd way. Like a, mm-hmm. we want to look like punks who are also hairstylists. Right. We want everybody to look like they came out of a Berlin video. Basically, yeah. So, yeah. like, there, there's, there's something modern. There's something inventive and artistic about that versus Greece being from the 50s. Everything about it is passe. And that's not to say that they were willing to give up on it. Um, the Stray Cats were very popular for a cup of coffee around this time. Mm-hmm. The following year, they would try again with, like, the uh, Eddie and the Cruisers movie, which also underperformed. Mm-hmm. And it had, like, a, a similar sort of pocket of time that it was trying to capture. So I think that just this was a bad time for this particular subgenre of musical and period piece. And I think that in the coming years, we would come to redefine what teens wanted mm-hmm. out of a musical. Because like Footloose would become extremely popular. Purple Rain would become extremely popular. We wanted movies with music that looked like MTV. We did not want musicals. Like, as a youth audience. Right. No, and I I agree with that, and I can see that, too. I also just think that, like, the window was closed. Like, this should have come out way faster. At least two years earlier. Yeah, they waited too long. And, again, like, that's not the fault of anybody who made this project. That's the fault of the decision makers and the people at a studio who are in charge of those decisions. Mm -hmm. They waited too long. And, like, we talk all the time about how teen movies are time capsules and they are trying to strike what is cool right then and there and they waited. This is this is a dated piece. It's passé. It's passé. They're mm-hmm. not interested in this anymore. And I think that that is a shame because I think that this is obviously great and a lot of people missed out on something great. Yeah. Um, but I get it. Like, I, I, I'm i not going to fault somebody who was around at this time period for not fully getting what was going on. Uh, people it now who have access to all of the information in the world, who have chosen not to become informed consumers. Uh, I have feelings about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's just so much to consume these days that it's just like you read a review and go, oh, oh, I don't need to watch that. Exactly. And like that's a big problem that has happened. And I think people forget that being a critic does not necessarily mean that you are the final word on something. And obviously no two critics are alike. Mm Mm-hmm. I always recommend people to like find a critic that they tend to agree with on a lot of things because then that way you can find somebody who has a similar voice to yours mm-hmm. and a similar 
palette, I guess. Yeah. Like, you know, there are plenty of people that I know. If I'm looking for somebody who's going to review, like, an art house movie, I have critics that I know that that is their wheelhouse. Like, mm-hmm. what are the art house critics saying? If there's an animated movie, I'm going to go to, like, my go-to animated critics. If there's, like, a weird-ass horror comedy, I'm going to go, what does Matt Donato have to say about this? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, these are the things that I'm going to do. And I think that that helps people become an informed viewer and an informed consumer, especially in this day and age when we are just bombarded with so many things that we could be watching, that it's important to find people that you tend to align with so that you don't miss out on the things that could be really good for you. No, I I, I agree. And so with our context out of the way, BJ, for all intents and purposes, you are the guest of the podcast because you're the guest of honor. We're going to put a little hat on you and then people are going to come out and clap and sing happy birthday like it's a TGI Fridays. Oh, please don't because I will put my entire face in the cake with the candle still lit and hope that it kills me. Okay, cool. So we're not going to do that, but we'll, let, let's say that you're just the, 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 the bell of the ball in that case. Though. Okay, thank you. First question I want to ask you about your love of Grease 2 and your opinions on it. Why do you love Grease 2 so much more than Grease 1? Just summarize it, rant, whatever you feel like going with. The answer is very simple, and it's Stephanie Zanoni. The issues that I have with Greece, uh, as you can very much hear in the first episode. For two hours. For two whole hours, you can hear how I feel about Greece. Um, Greece 2 doesn't have any of those issues. I mean, the the issues that exist in terms of actors being too old, uh, they lean into it, and they kind of play it for laughs, and it makes it less creepy when they're doing things. But more importantly, Michelle Pfeiffer as Stephanie Zanoni. A lot of people like to say that the Stephanie character is sort of an extension of Rizzo, which I see why people are getting that. But the reality is that Stephanie Zanoni doesn't have to rule with fear or with aggression. She just is effortlessly cool. Mm -hmm. She's a cool girl. She thinks for herself. She does what she wants when she wants. She's in control of her life. She's also questioning sort of this weird rule hierarchy they've established where the only reason that pink ladies exist is because the T-Birds have to have chicks. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you know, maybe I'm tired of being someone's chick. Like, that's a very radical idea at this time period. But... I just love her. I think that she's great. And I also think that it's important for us to see a protagonist like her that is effortlessly cool, Mm -hmm. that is beautiful, that knows what she wants. But at the same time, like, she's not perfect. She's not doing well in English class. She has to require a tutor. And she talks about that. Mm -hmm. She also has dreams and aspirations, like, beyond high school, which I think is really, really interesting. And we didn't get to see a lot of characters like that at this time. They've done so much character work with her in this musical, which musicals tend to be very kind of, you know, skim uh, when it comes to character development. But I think Stephanie is like a fully realized person. And she's a teenager who knows who she is. And that's why what makes her such a great leader of the Pink Ladies. I agree. Like comparing her to Rizzo doesn't feel accurate at all. It just feels like the easiest comparison because Rizzo is the cool one in the last movie and Stephanie's the cool one in this one. But Rizzo is definitely like okay with the system of the Pink Ladies and the T-Birds. And she cares a lot about it, and she kind of makes fun of people for caring about other things. Stephanie 
does not care. Absolutely. Rizzo is super combative, which, like, don't get me wrong. I love Rizzo. Like, Betty Rizzo is such a great character. Agreed. But, like, she is somebody who hates on Patty Simcox for an entire movie because, like, she's not good enough or even says t- about Sandy, like, no, 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 I think she's too pure to be pink. Stephanie doesn't care about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And even when she first meets Michael in the hallway before it's, like, established that, like, oh, maybe there's a crush thing going on here, she even gives him advice because the T-Birds are messing with him and she's like, hey, don't let them get to you. Like, she she's essentially taking, like, the Mr. Coulson approach and, like, never been kissed. Like, hey, some guys are always rattling cages. Like, she is so, like not starry-eyed about the T-Birds and what they represent because she broke up with Johnny because she's like, I'm done with this guy. Mm-hmm. And so she she's disillusioned with this whole, like, hierarchy and she's part of it because she's always been part of it. But she's questioning, like, well, why does this even exist? This is kind of dumb. Like, mm-hmm. no, we don't need this. And that makes her so much more effortlessly cool in my eyes. And, like, there's so many people that you could make fun of in this movie that fill the Patty Simcox role. Like, the twins, for sure, are... The, the girls that represent that. And like, yeah, she kind of messes with them. She makes fun of them for being virgins, but she does so when she's with all of the other girls and they're the ones who start it and she just kind of participates. Mm-hmm. So we're just looking at peer pressure at that point. Yeah. Like Stephanie is just so much more realized, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like an archetype. And that's really important to me. I agree. And like, it's really wild to think about how she almost didn't get cast in Scarface, which I have not revisited Scarface since high school because like, you know, douchebags. Right. <laughs> they really suck the life out of that movie along with like Fight Club and all these other like mm-hmm. Boondock Saints. Boondock Saints. But Pulp Fiction, you know, college dorm poster movies. Yes. Basically. But it's really wild to think about that, but even though she is very good in this, but it's not as obvious how good of a performance she's putting into this film versus Scarface. Oh, totally. She's a has, lot more of a flex. Yeah, she has way more to do in that. But in, in Greece too, there are moments where you're like, wow, no, she's she's magnificent. Because you have these like very confident like popping of the collar and like, you know, the the pink lady's motto is to to look cool, to act cool, to be cool. And mm-hmm. she looks so fucking cool. She does look cool. Like that stuff's all all there. But then you also have these moments of vulnerability with her where she's either in the diner getting tutored by Michael and she's talking about ketchup and like being cute and she's in her element by herself and just you there's even like a little bit of nervousness because you can tell she kind of has a crush on Michael back at this point of the mm-hmm. movie and you see a little bit of that vulnerability and then when you know this mysterious motorcycle man who surprises also Michael Carrington when she thinks that he dies she spends like the last 20 minutes of this movie in a full ass trauma response just like devastated just disassociating yes. during girl of all seasons and just start singing something else yes. mid performance and it's like wow no she's really bringing it in this movie that you know admittedly is not the meatiest of material as it shouldn't be I mean it's a teen musical it's a teen musical set in 1961 yeah. like it's not we're not reading like Socrates here. Like I get it. And having her commit that hard and show like all of these different ranges of personality where, you know, one second she's having the time of her life on the back of a motorcycle. And the next minute she is just like telling a dude off. Like that's incredible. And I love being able to see a woman given the range to do that. Whereas we, we don't get that in the original Greece. Like all of the girls are kind of one note archetypes. Mm -hmm. Stephanie's not. Oh, you know, Steph, there's been talk. We haven't been talking, but there has been talk, Steph, questioning your loyalty to the birds. 
It doesn't mean that you gotta go steady with Johnny. In fact, I think it's better for the both of you that it's over. Yeah, but the code does say that we're T-bird chicks. At least till grand. Let's go, Lewis. Yeah, well, maybe I'm tired of being someone's chick. Something that we talked about a lot while we were re-watching it was that the pink ladies are so much more the emphasis of Greece 2 than they are in Greece 1. Uh, mm-hmm. The T-birds are kind of kind of nothing. They're they're wieners. They're they're kind of nothing. The message boys. of Greece 2 is that men ain't shit. Yeah. Like fully it is. Yeah. So with that in mind, a question that I want to ask you is that obviously Greece was extremely popular with female audiences, much more than men. Uh, well, yeah, it's a musical. So, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and also it's a musical about love and it's bubblegum and sugary and yeah. pink and like I understand why it was more popular with with girls than boys. Why do you think this movie failed in comparison to the original when it has a stronger emphasis on women? Uh, because you do still have to have male audiences to pay attention, and there is a lack of a male power fantasy in this movie, mm-hmm. because all of the T-Birds are shown to be kind of bumbling fools. Um, they are shown to be desperate for the approval and attention of women. Uh, they are shown to also be a little chicken shit, because when Belmuda shows up and, you know, goes to have a fight, Johnny, like, immediately bails because he's terrified of him. Well, I mean, they are pretty heavily outnumbered. <laughs> oh, well, that's very true, but, like, the way in which he does that, like... Johnny in this has like serious short man energy, which is kind of great, and I uh-huh. love. Um, See, the thing is, I'm not even positive if he's that short or if just like Shooter McGavin's really tall. Yeah, Chris McDonald is very tall. Yes. Okay, cool. I'm, <laughs> I did not. I've never learned that man's name. He is forever Shooter McGavin, regardless of what role he is in. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i sure that there's That's probably totally a part fun. of him that appreciates that, actually. I mean, probably. But yes, I, I think those two being next to each other certainly makes him have l- look like he has even more of like a short guy syndrome. Oh, yeah. And the guy who plays like Louis DiMucci is also tall. So like, yeah, yeah, Johnny looks a lot shorter in comparison. But something that I think is also interesting is they also show that like they're idiots, too. Like... That's why they have to enlist the help of Michael as a tutor and to write their papers because they're dumb and they say teen boys and they're dumb teen boys and they don't care about school and like this movie kind of shows that that's not a cool thing to be like when you're in the middle of science class learning about the birds and the bees and you refer to it as mental stration Mm -hmm. you sound like an idiot and this movie shows that like yeah if you're a guy and you only care about being cool you're not gonna get the girl you're gonna get chewed out for being an asshole. And you're dumb. And, like, that's no way to get through life, my dude. No. Like, one of the moments that stands out the most to me in this film is they're on, like, the football field and they're just having, like, gym class. And then Craterface and his gang of motorcycle thugs come rolling in onto the field midday, mid-school. And it doesn't help that Craterface also looks like he's 40. Like, he looks so old in this one especially because he's got some years on him compared to the original Grease. But you have this thought of like, wow, he's graduated. Like this is a, the actor is a full grown man. This character is clearly old and shouldn't be fucking around with high schoolers. And yet he is because he just never grew up. And it's almost like really sad that this is still how he's prioritizing his time. Yeah. So Dennis Stewart, who plays Belmuda, a.k.a. Craterface, he was 35 
in this Which is movie. not the worst compared to some people that were in the original Grease, because I think some of them were like 38, but yeah. all the same. Like, he, he also just has, like, a really weather-worn face in general. Like, he's he's a dude with some miles on him. Mm-hmm. He looks a little haggard. Mm-hmm. So he looks older than he actually is. But, like, that's what these guys are going to end up doing. After they graduate. Yeah, they're going to turn into that guy who shows up at, like, the end of school luau just to cause chaos because he's got nothing better to do. They're going to be McConaughey and Dazed and Confused? Yes, actually. Like, that's a very good point. It's like, yeah, you kind of need to figure your life out, boys, or you're going to end up just like this, and that's lame. Yeah. Like, there's a reason that Danny Zuko and Kaniki and all of them are not here to defend you and help you. I assume they've moved on. They've moved on. And it's like, y'all are gonna need to do that like you're you're making some problems here <laughs> yeah so it, it, i think that that is one aspect is there's no dream boats to drool no. over the way that there is this with is such, john travolta this is such a movie like about women being awesome and for women because it's clear like obviously that was greece's major audience but Grease is one of those like universally appealing films where people, regardless of gender identity and age and whatever, all enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Grease 2 is a lot more specific in, in mm-hmm. its messaging. It's not as, we're appeasing to everybody. And I think that's a big part of why it wasn't, one, so universally accepted. But yeah, it's because the men ain't shit in this movie. So why? what would entice a man to watch this unless, you know, they're somebody capable of empathy and not a total asshole? Yeah. So like all of the men who love this movie, because I know there are plenty of you, congratulations, you're not assholes and I love you. <laughs> I also love you. So speaking of Grease 2 not being as universally appealing as Grease 1. Let, let's talk about the musical aspect of this musical. <laughs> so yes. Grease 1 has some some stinkers on its soundtrack, like Hopelessly Devoted to You is not great. Even though uh, I know plenty of people who love it. It's fine. Beauty School Dropout, not my favorite. Yeah. Like there's, there's some lower points that I don't think Grease 2 has as many low points as the other one does. But Grease 1 has extreme highs yes. that everyone knows. It know, they, people know Grease. They know uh, Summer Lovin' or whatever the actual name of it is. Mm-hmm. They know Grease Lightning. They know Grease Lightning. They know You're the One That I Want. They know the Shamalama Ding Dong song that should we not... We go together. That should not be the closing number, but whatever. Right. The cultural permeance with which we have absorbed it like a sponge, like we know Grease 1. It is just pure Americana at this point. Mm-hmm. Grease 2 doesn't have that. And nope. As someone who has not spent a lot less time understanding the music and the choreography and, like, the musical nature of Grease 2, mm-hmm. I don't know what's different. Like, it doesn't feel as bubblegummy. I know that much. Mm-hmm. But perhaps you can speak more on the difference between Grease 1 as a musical and Grease 2 as a musical. All right. So there's a couple things to take into consideration here. One, this is not based on a stage adaptation. So this is a, a show that has not been workshopped to death before it is acceptable to go on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the mu- the music that's in Grease 1 has gone through all of that workshopping, has gone through trial and error, has gotten audience feedback. Like all of that did not happen for this movie. So you're you're getting music that has not been made by design and by commission to appeal to as many people as humanly possible. So there's that number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, the the music in Greece 2 is infinitely more mature 
than the music in Grease 1. Uh, we, we are getting into some edgy territory here because uh, while, yes, Grease Lightning does have, like, you know, chicks will cream, she's a real pussy wagon, mm-hmm. like, lines like that, which are, like, kind of, you know, blink and you'll miss they it. They feel really out of place. Honestly. Yeah. Whereas, like, the, the Grease Lightning equivalent in Grease 2 is Prowlin', which is a song specifically about hiring sex workers. Mm. And it's sung by high school boys, which is, like, interesting. Um, you also then have things like the Reproduction song, which is about, like, the weird gender feelings about sex in high school and people showing what they do know and what they do not know about sex. Um, you have Do It For Our Country, which is a song I will go on an entire tangent itself on. But it's essentially a song about a guy trying to convince his girlfriend to have sex with him by pretending that they're going to war, um, which is like horrifying. Um, like, but those are songs that are very much uh, a little edgy. Um, there are probably songs that you don't want your ten year old singing. Um, the way that you can get away with them singing some of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Grease one was very much like hiding teenage debauchery. Uh, Grease two is singing about it on its face, and I think that that is a little bit too open and too mature for a lot of people. So you've got that going on. But then also uh, the 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 big like banging numbers of Grease 2, like Cool Rider especially or Let's Bowl, um, the, the songs themselves are a little bit harder. Uh, and harder in the sense of like, one, the, the music itself is more difficult to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit more upbeat. It doesn't feel as toothy the way that Grease 1 does. Um, so if it's something that people can't immediately gravitate towards and like, the entire room can sing along to, mm-hmm. then it becomes a failure. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. First of all, uh, like the bowling s- number, the choreography scares me because they're doing all of these on, wicked moves. On bowling floors? On bowling floors, and that is so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like when you look at something like Let's Bowl, like – that the lyrics to that are not difficult by any stretch of the imagination no. and like there's nothing wrong with that it's a very easy kind of number but i'm glad that you mentioned the choreography because patricia birch who directed this was also the choreographer on grease 1 um she then is the director of grease 2 mm-hmm. so she is clearly like we are highlighting the choreography, the choreography, yeah, the choreography in Grease Two is so much harder than what you have in Grease One. You mean you don't have any plonky chicken arms in this one? Yeah, there's no plonky chicken <laughs> arms. There's no hand jive, like which is really silly because there is a dance competition in the first one. Agreed, <laughs> but the 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 sing the the dancing in this is so much harder, and I think that's also part of what hurt this movie is because you can't do the dances with your friends. Because it's impossible to do. Like, it's very, Uh very hard. And, like, because it's got a much bigger budget, when we get to, like, the talent show. Much bigger as in, like, $10 million as opposed to two. (laughs) It's still, that's a huge jump, though, from that time period. I know. And now you have, like, this big spectacle numbers. You have, like, all these big motorcycle jumps. Like, the car race, yeah, that's, that's thrilling. Motorcycles are way scarier than cars. Oh, yeah. More things can go wrong. 100%. And this movie is filled with motorcycle moments that are, like, genuinely impressive to watch. But Also, like, the way they shoot motorcycles in this are so cool. Oh, like, my God, yeah. Uh, there's the scene during, 
like who's that guy where it shows Crater Face and his guys and they're all lined up and they're lit from behind and it looks awesome. Oh yeah, and they slowly get off their bikes at the same time. Like it is so like Patricia Burke choreographed the shit out of this movie. Yeah, or when I think of like what does Grease 2 look like to me? Grease 2 looks like Stephanie disassociating and imagining the cool rider on like a mountain of motorcycle corpses in all gold in a white room. <laughs> oh, yeah. That scene is so good. And it's also really poetic because, I mean, you mentioned this when we were watching it, is that Grease 1 has those moments randomly of, like, all white rooms that don't really fit. Like They don't, they just, they don't have a budget. They don't have sets. Yeah, they just kind of feel out of nowhere. Whereas, like, the all white room that we see when she's imagining him being dead and, like, talking to his ghost, like, that's how you put up memorials for bicycles is mm-hmm. you paint white bicycles. And also it just looks heavenly. Yes. So, like, it makes complete sense why this is what she's hallucinating. It's, like, a nice little it's, throwback it's to the original. Yeah. yeah, but it's great theming. Yeah. It's, like, it's... Those elements are used more intelligently in this movie than than in the previous one. Yeah, I think that there are some, like, much more, like, perfect shot moments that look great in Grease 2. But I don't know if they appeal in the exact same way. Because when you think of, like, the iconic music of Grease 1, it's like, oh, Summer Nights. Which is a lot of, like, talk singing and, oh, well, oh, well, oh, well, oh. And it's, like, mm-hmm. really dopey sounding. And... The centerpiece of that one is love. The centerpiece of this one is almost anti-love. It's respect. It's independence. It's making decisions for yourself. Yeah. Which, like, I think people just maybe weren't ready for. It's a more difficult love story. Because you're rejecting Johnny, who is the person that you were supposed to love in the last movie. And then you get with, like, the British dork. And we don't appreciate British accents, apparently, in the early 80s yet. Like, okay. Fully, I will never understand nor forgive Hollywood for not making Maxwell Caulfield a star. Uh, For those that don't know, he also goes on to, he's Rex Manning in Empire Records, another Mm -hmm. movie that we will talk about eventually. But he has everything. He is gorgeous, like unbelievably gorgeous. You don't get to see it as much as I would like in this, but he is also shredded to the gills. He is in such great shape. He has perfect hair. He has a beautiful singing voice. He's a good actor. And he has like a charming British accent. Like how he was not just like skyrocketed to superstardom is beyond me Mm -hmm. because he's He's amazing. Like, he's so good in this, too. And I've seen him in other stuff, and, like, he did TV, and he did a lot of theater. He's a very talented performer, and he should have been one of the biggest stars in the world, and the fact that he wasn't is a crime. Well, Grease 2 is, is, is like a lead balloon. It took, all like, everyone down with it except for Michelle Pfeiffer. Here's the thing. There are three people from this movie who have gone on to be very successful. We have Michelle Pfeiffer, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. We have Chris McDonald who is, you know, becomes Shooter McGavin. And then we have Pamela Adlin. Uh. Like, baby teenage Pamela Adlin. For those who do not know, she is one of the most decorated voice actors working today. She's Bobby Hill, for God's sakes. She plays Dolores Rebchuk. So, like, you have people that did come out of this and do well, but for the most part, like... No one knows really what happened to a lot of these people. Like, a lot of them were day players. A lot of them did TV. A lot of them did, like, side stuff. But Mm -hmm. nobody became, like, a superstar the way that you ended up with, like, John Travolta. And that, like, hurts my heart on such a fundamental level because I think everyone in here is doing really good work. Mm -hmm. I think they're all really funny and they're all really, really clever. I mean, we do get, like, a cameo from Tab Hunter, which is just, like, chef's kiss. What a great thing. And I think this is the theory I have because we talked about it a little bit after we watched it. Grease 1 is, like, campy in the sense of, like, 
it's queerness that's palatable for straight audiences. So it's RuPaul's Drag Race. So it's RuPaul's Drag Race. Ugh. Grease 2 is campy and queer in a way that feels campy and queer. So it's Dragula. Like it's it's, it's more challenging queerness. Yeah. It's not as polished and access accessible. Absolutely. Like this movie is so much more challenging and like it is a little like naughty and it was not afraid. It's a little more naughty. Yeah, and the, it's, the original's a little naughty. This is like it's very direct about it. It absolutely it owns its naughtiness, which I like. It doesn't try to like sneak it in in cute little like double entendre lyrics. Uh-huh. It's like, no, this is a song about fucking. Get on board. Yeah, and like that's great to me. Like own the fact that teenagers are sexual, and I think mm-hmm. it made people uncomfortable. Genuinely, Probably. I think that it bothered them like how raunchy this movie is because it bothers them to think about teenagers having bodily autonomy, making decisions for themselves. Which is hilarious because we're coming off of a, a number of very successful sex comedies, but Grease is supposed to be the squeaky clean thing that yeah, the young kids the can watch. Yeah, this is the family movie, yeah. and it's not. It's yeah. like, no, 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 this is a movie for teenagers. Don't you forget. Mm-hmm. I'll try to make it crystal clear. A flower's insatiable passion turns its life into a circus of debauchery. Now you see just how the stamen gets its lusty dust onto the stigma. And why this frenzied chlorophyllous orgy starchy spring is no enigma. We call this quest for satisfaction a what class? A photoperiodic reaction. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's very good. Hey, I'm lost. Where are we? Chapter two. Page five. Reproduction. Reproduction. Put your pollen to pure. Reproduction. Reproduction. Make my stamen go berserk. Reproduction. I don't think they even know what a pistol is. I got your pistol right here. One last question that I want to ask before we just move on to like normal things is while I don't think anything about Grease 2 needs to be changed, like virtually nothing, um, no major changes. Do you think there is any time this could have been released from like 1982 onward where it would have been successful? Not with the name of Grease 2. Like I think had this been a completely independently released musical that was not called Grease 2 that had like some other, maybe it was called Cool Rider, who knows? Mm-hmm. And it just sort of like borrowed similar aesthetic. It could have been about like gang turf war, don't make them T-Birds and Pink Ladies, make them something else. Mm-hmm. I think people would have been like, oh, that's cute. It's kind of like an homage to Grease. And I think they would have responded infinitely better because they wouldn't have had the preconceived notions of what the original Grease is, was, and continues to be that influenced their opinion on it. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think that this movie could have benefited from like, and I'm not saying it should have slashed its budget, but it could have benefited a lot more from being filmed and produced like a B movie. I would Uh, agree with that. Like Streets of Fire is a movie that I would love to cover on the podcast one day, but it is also like a motorcycle driven musical that Mm -hmm. doesn't take place in our current time. Right. Uh, It way underperformed tragically, Mm -hmm. but something like Rock and Roll High School, which had a budget of nothing, did very, very well, despite... Basically just being a goofy beach musical. Mm-hmm. I think if you had tried to make a Grease 2 like that, it would have fared better and the standards would have been lower because you don't have to make as much of your money back for it to be a success. And also, don't call it Grease 2. Yes. Yeah, I think that's really the the thing that hurt it the most is because this movie 
is such a different energy. It's such a different tone. And like, ye- and also I think there's just a stink from the late seventies on Greece one and in the early eighties at that point that people don't want. No, I agree with you completely. Like I genuinely do. I think that this movie was sort of doomed to fail before it ever even opened. Like it didn't matter what was going to be on screen. It didn't matter if this was just a paint by numbers recreation of the first one it was not going to do well. And Mm -hmm. the fact that they instead chose to subvert everything that people loved about the first one, like was really a dangerous move. And I'm so thankful that they took it. I'm sad that it blew up in all of their faces because I don't think that it should have, Mm -hmm. but they took a massive swing when they did this by changing everything. Mm -hmm. And I am forever grateful for it because this movie genuinely changed my life and I love it very much. I also appreciate this film, and I just love watching you be so excited to talk about something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I, I'm very used to loving and defending movies that other people think are trash. Like, I, under, I understand that. And I don't know. Part of me takes a, a bit of pride about it. Part of me is very exhausted by it. Mm-hmm. Like, I should not have to make two-hour podcast episodes to convince people that a movie like Josie and the Pussycats or Grease 2 are worth their time. Mm-hmm. But if that's what I need to do to get people to understand, then that's fine by me. And I can absolutely do that um, because I, I love this movie. I love everything about it. I, I think that it's interesting to look at. I like the music. Obviously, it's not perfect. There are things that I, I don't fully like. I think Charades is shot in a way that does a, a big disservice to... Maxwell Caulfield singing as well as the message of what's happening like I get that it's kind of his own little soliloquy and that's sweet mm-hmm. but um the movie I feel like comes to a screeching halt whenever that song comes on yeah I I don't know who produced some of the music for Grease 2 but like they put a lot of reverb on some of the vocals and it yeah. just it makes it feel distant and I don't think that's what you want when you're trying to connect to people. Um, I, I have theories that because a lot of the people who are in Greece too are not singers, they're trying to like sort of mask imperfections mm-hmm. or make their voice sound a little bit larger by making it sound like it's in a large room. Mm-hmm. But this is a result that we see in a lot of the music and it it, it doesn't feel close, like mm-hmm. in terms of your ear or personally in that sense. Mm-hmm. No, I agree completely. And I also think that the music that was written doesn't necessarily show off the talents of a lot of the the cast as well as they could. Like how Paulette does not have a solo? Yeah, the fact that Lorna Luft is not singing a solo song is bananas to me. It you is. have Judy Garland's daughter, <laughs> and you're giving her throwaway lines. It is so frustrating when she gets a random line here and there, and you hear her and you go, Wow. She's way better than everyone else in this musical, (laughs) and they gave her nothing. Yeah, she is so outstanding. Like, I love Lorna Luft, and I cannot imagine what it must have been like to grow up as not only Judy Garland's daughter, but Liza Minnelli's sister. Like, Mm -hmm. I truly don't know what that must have felt like for her. She is so (laughs) outstanding in this. She's so funny. She has great comedic timing. She has, like, incredible delivery of a lot of, like, her little isms and her non-audible acting moments. Like, Mm -hmm. Her smile, an, an eyebrow raise, like she, the way she moves her fingernails. She's, she's a babe. She's such a babe. Those gold lame pants, oh, whew, <laughs> incredible. Uh-huh. Um, but like she was also a character that I loved growing up because I think in Greece you sort of pick your favorite pink lady. I don't have to pick here. I love all of them, and they're all doing very different things. Like I love the fact that like Rhonda is loud and kind of brash. 
I love the fact that Sharon is sort of like the hey guys wait for me character. I, I love that for her. Um, but Paulette is just as strong willed as Stephanie is. I think that we do see something interesting is that Paul, I think Paulette fills the Rizzo role for me a little bit um, in that she's tough, but you can tell she is very concerned about like maintaining appearances mm-hmm. and maintaining like the status quo. Like that's important to her because this is where she has power. Yeah, you can't reject the T-Birds. Exactly. And she's afraid to lose that power. She obviously really has a thing for Johnny and like he's kind of doing her dirty because he's still obsessed with his ex and needs to grow up and like stop he's being an so asshole. so not into her and it's so frustrating. Well, what's frustrating is he is into her, but he is so much more into not being rejected mm-hmm. because you know he's into her because when he sees her in like her hot ass lingerie before the talent show, he's like, uh, get some galoshes and a coat and you can be winter. Yeah. Like you are not going out like, there like that. What are you like doing wearing that? And I was like, well, she looks great. She and- looks amazing. And also it's summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like she justifies it, but that's when you see the moment of he really does care about her and loves her and feels protective over her. But he's he's so stuck up his own ass with his ego because Stephanie rejected him. Like it's not about Stephanie. Like he doesn't like Stephanie. It's about what it means to be rejected because you don't dump T-birds. And that's kind of the bullshit that he's bought into. But even Paulette finally gets sick of it and is like, hey, I'm not the classiest broad in this school, but I'm the best you're ever going to get. And mm-hmm. it's like... Hell yeah, girl. Own that shit. Fuck Johnny. He sucks. But here's my question with Johnny, because, yes, he does suck. I don't think he's as upset that Stephanie left him or that Paulette's going to go out wearing, like, gorgeous boudoir lingerie on stage for any reason other than, like, he's wildly possessive and he doesn't want Stephanie to go be with a different guy. He doesn't want other people to see Paulette. That's for him, not other people. See, I would normally agree with you, but there is one moment that changes that, and it's when the talent show actually happens, and Paulette goes out in the outfit, and she is, like, in the bridal lingerie, and smiling and looking her best. They pan over for one second to Johnny, and he looks at her with, like, the most love a a high school boy can look at their girlfriend, and you realize, like, he's having that moment of, like, no, she's right, and I love her, and she does look amazing. Mm-hmm. And, like, all of it kind of goes away. Like, there's a lot of stuff like that that happens in this movie where conflict is resolved in moments that you have to be paying attention to see. It doesn't spoon-feed it to you the way that Grease 1 does. And I think that's also probably what hurt this movie because as much as I don't want to be, like, Grease appeases to the lowest common denominator because I think that that's also kind of rude and doing a disservice to this movie. Mm-hmm. Grease 2 requires a little bit more media literacy. Like, you have to be able to follow arcs with non-verbal acting and with non-verbal storytelling mm-hmm. because that moment is one of my favorites in the whole movie. And I love that, like, Paulette is just a little bit out of focus so that she almost looks like she's glowing, mm-hmm. which I don't think was intentional, but that's how it came across. But by panning over to Johnny, we then get the conclusion of that story. Like, we get the completion of that arc because the next time we see them together, obviously Johnny and Stephanie win the talent show. They are forced together to be in, like, the weird tiki pool in the very appropriative outfit. We will get to that. Uh Um, And he's annoyed because he's like, you're making me look bad. Like, he's caring about his, his appearances and stuff. But he ends the movie... By being, like, the tough guy, but ultimately, like, the one who makes the decision that, like, yeah, Michael's one of us. He deserves to be 
part of the T-Birds. He's incredible as a biker. And also, like, I have Paulette and I love her. And, like, he he kind of swallows his pride a little bit. And it takes the whole movie to get there, but that's why it's called character arc. Like, that's how that goes. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I've seen this movie maybe only two or three times now. And I suppose I missed that, like, second of him looking. Though I do stand by, I think that's what he was thinking until he has that realization. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Which is much more compelling for him to have growth then. Absolutely, because this movie paints the T-Birds in a way where we're not supposed to root for them. And that's what makes Grease 1 so frustrating to me is because they sneak in how like inappropriate and shitty these guys are, and yet we're supposed to admire them. We're supposed to see them as like the coolest guys in school. Grease 2 does not paint either of these groups as the coolest people in school. They're just a social gang Mm -hmm. at this point. Like, they're a social club. And I think that makes it such an infinitely more interesting story because then we're able to look at these characters as, like, full people and less about archetypes. But we can use what we know about, like, groupthink and, like, you know, the the sociological implications of being part of a group like this and, like, Mm -hmm. such a severe, like, territorial clique. But ultimately, like, we're not supposed to look at the T-Birds and be like, oh, my gosh, look how great they are. He didn't even know Rome was in trouble. Like, we don't (laughs) feel that way about them. And I like that. I think that that's a far more interesting way to handle these guys rather than being like, here's an entire male power fantasy for everybody. And you love them so much that you look past the fact that they are assaulting women left and fucking right. Like this movie, (laughs) if you're being a shithead, you get called on being a shithead. Yeah, this movie demands you to be critical of people. 100%, which is why I want to kind of like pivot a little bit into talking about like general things. But the song Do It For Our Country is the one that gets brought up all the time because people will say, like, well, Grease 2 is a feminist masterpiece. And then people will try to counter that and be like, no, it's not because Do It For Our Country. So, like, the entire setup of that is that Lewis wants to have sex with Sharon and she's not put out because she doesn't want to. And so he decides he's going to fake a nuclear warning and trap her in a bomb shelter and then they're going to have sex. And it's they, the end of the world. It's the end of the world, so we've got to do it and so we don't divergence. So the entire point of the song is that they are singing about two different things. Lewis is singing about, like, we have to do it for our country, like, we have to not divergence. Whereas Sharon is singing about, like, I'm going to join the USO and you're going to enlist and we're going to win this war and we're going to be great Americans. And then when it's revealed that, no, he's just trying to have sex with her, she like yells about it. And she's like, ew, no, I can't believe you've done this. And like peace is out. And it's like, friends, depiction is not endorsement. Like this movie does not stop becoming a feminist masterpiece because a guy is being shitty and the movie acknowledges that he's shitty at no moment. Does Grease 2 ever paint these boys who are doing bad things and saying gross stuff as heroes? They are portrayed as bumbling fools the entire movie, Mm -hmm. which is what Grease 1 should have done but didn't do. How dare this movie be cheeky with its double entendre that now we can misconstrue through a feminist lens 40 years later. It like it makes me so wild when people say that. We're like, well, that song's super like predatory and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. That's the point. Like, you're not supposed to like him. You're supposed to take the side of Sharon and being like, Lewis, what the hell? And that's why at the end of the movie, when they're singing, like, we'll be together, he 
sings a line about like, when are we going to do it? And she's like, it's okay to just like each other. And he kind of like accepts that and is like, yeah, you're right. Cause I care more about you than I do about sex. And they keep dancing and they are still together. Mm-hmm. Like they are having a relationship conflict about the boundaries of sex. And Sharon is the one setting boundaries. And I hate that. Yes, it does take him more than once to understand no means no, but one, it's 1961, and two, it's the 80s. We were not having these conversations yet. Please understand context of history. It's not endorsing it. It's not encouraging it. It's calling it for what it is. Absolutely. But speaking of depiction is not endorsement, let's talk about the final scene of this movie and all of its uh, set dressing. Oh, God. Mind you, as we're having this conversation, I believe Hawaii is currently going through a water crisis because there's too many people visiting Hawaii. There's too many people visiting, and the government has poisoned their water supply. Yeah, wasn't it the Navy? It was the Navy. It was just, it's a problem. I wish we would just leave Hawaii alone. So 1961 is only two years after Hawaii has become a state. Mm -hmm. And during this era of Americana... America got obsessed with tiki, tropical, Hawaiian, all of that. So the Mm -hmm. end of this movie is a luau. And the problem is that there is a lot of stuff that goes on in this scene that is super appropriative. Mm -hmm. Like the dance styling is very much a bastardized form of hula. The the men are wearing like tribal masks. Like it's not okay by Mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination. And so I need people to understand, like, what I'm going to say next is not me defending this in any way, shape, or form. It is me explaining it. This tracks for something that would have happened in the 1960s. Luau parties were all the rage because everyone was like, ooh, now it's American to be into Hawaii because America is a grossly, like, nationalistic country. So we tend as a culture to not embrace the countries that we are from unless they are white. Everything else is painted as like exotic or dangerous or third world. But once America took Hawaii, uh, then suddenly it became okay to to indulge in this sort of like cultural festivities because in the, the brains of a lot of Americans, this is ours now. So whenever we see these celebrations, like I need people to know that like you're celebrating colonization and that's gross as hell. Well, yeah, this is the same. This this movie takes place the same year that they released Blue Hawaii with Elvis. Oh, uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm not the biggest scholar of, uh, of music from the mid-century in this regard, but my understanding is that we in America had a lot of passing trends with uh, with world music in big quotes, which is basically saying like, ah, it's not English language music whenever you go to like an FYE or a Virgin Records. That's where we just dump all of those things in this country. So you had a trend after World War II where we were obsessed with like South American music because it was one of the only places that wasn't bombed to shit during World War II. We had a passing phase with a... Uh, sort of uh, Caribbean and Jamaican music and ska during like the later 50s. We have had a passing interest in the mambo. And now by this point, it's like, ah, yes, Hawaiian. That's our current like kitschy backyard party we're going to throw in the suburbs. And it's it's gross. Um, it, it is, it's fascinating because, I mean, without America's interest in stuff like that, I guess I wouldn't have ever found people like Ima Sumak, who I fucking love and is one of, like, the best singers ever. But it's 
it's it's gross and it's unpleasant, but like if you look at Hawaii specifically, we in like the continental United States, and I would assume Alaska, but I'm not gonna throw them in this lump. We have this idea of luxury associated with Hawaii that still persists, and I can't help but feel like it's because you need to fly there, and it's expensive to fly there. You can't like. Clark Griswold your family into a station wagon and drive to Hawaii, which means that there is a barrier of entry Mm -hmm. and that makes it exclusive and that makes it nice. And that means we want to bring it home and make it like kitschy window dressing for our backyard barbecues. Yeah. I mean, I have such mixed feelings about the fact that like part of mid-century styling a lot of times incorporates these elements. Oh, yeah. Like, you get, like, all the tiki glasses and stuff. And, like, that's cool, like, aesthetically, but we should not have co-opted that design as, like, white people. It's it's gnarly and it's not okay. No, 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 because, not at all. Because we colonized an area. And, like, the indigenous Hawaiian people have been saying, like, since the start of the pandemic, like, hey, stop coming here. Like, mm-hmm. leave us alone. You're getting yeah. us sick. Yeah. And people keep doing it. Yeah, so in terms of, like, this movie, if there is one thing that I would change about it, it would be that. I wish that it was, like, I I know that they couldn't have done, like, an end-of-year carnival since that's what they did the last one. I get why it's there. It fits in terms of, like, its cultural time place. That's exactly what this high school would have done. Mm -hmm. It's just a bummer because it's, like, I, I wish that it wasn't that way, but at the same time... I guess I am glad that they did do it this way because it allows us to acknowledge this time period mm-hmm. where this was such a thing and we need to reckon with it because we haven't and still haven't and I don't know when what it's going to take for us to actually reckon with the fact that we colonized the island and that's mm-hmm. fucked up. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. Like I wish that I could change it because then this movie would be like infinitely less problematic. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like changing it would be as bad as like denying that that's a thing that happened in the first place. And yeah. like I don't stand for that either. No, I. I don't know if I've actually ever brought this up on the podcast. I spent five years working as a vintage dealer in my early twenties, and I became very intimately aware of like the mid-century kitsch and tat that we appreciated in America. And I'm very aware of, like, tiki-based stuff and how popular it was for, like, our parents and our grandparents' generations. And the fact that it is just kitsch and it is, like, this cute novelty and that's all it's been boiled down to is such a bottled up and sold idea of like what America does that is so fucking gross and is one of many reasons I'm not in that line of work anymore. So I, I I don't know, man. I do. I will say that I appreciate that this exists in Greece too, because if nothing else, it does highlight that this was an extremely popular thing to do. And by the eighties, it sort of transitioned over into like the uh, Florida aesthetic where we had like, pink and rattan and flamingos like the it looks like a golden girl's home basically is what this eventually morphed into 100 percent, yeah so i'm not gonna say that i feel good about it being here but by having it be here that means that it's impossible to not have these conversations because again this is a challenging movie it demands that you think about things a bit 
Yeah, and I think people don't want to think about things when it comes to this movie. That's the big beef that I have with Greece is that there's plenty of stuff to think about in that movie. There's plenty of stuff to break apart and assess and analyze and come to terms with. And nobody does it. It's so easy not to. Because it's so easy not to. Whereas Grease 2, you can't. Because they're singing songs about sex. And they're singing songs about, like, female autonomy. And they're singing songs about mourning and grieving. And they're singing all of the, like, singing songs about living a double life. Like, the songs are so much deeper. You have to reckon with what they're saying. So then it leads you to be able to break apart more of what's happening in the story, what the stylistic choices, like there's so much more to digest. And I don't think people want to do that. They want to shut their brains off and get smooth baby brain and sing happy songs. And that's not what this musical is. Mm -hmm. And all of my favorite musicals are the ones that are challenging like this. And that's just not what a lot of people want from a musical, especially one that is coming in the wake of one of the most like mindless musicals ever written. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like I don't mean Just that pull, really pulling your punches on that one huh <laughs> like I don't want to sound like a huge asshole because like spoiler alert if you didn't listen to the Grease episode I do secretly actually really like Grease I just hate the way that it has been consumed culturally on so many levels and it's because people don't like to be informed viewers and you have to be an informed viewer to watch Grease too. you can't shut your brain off on this because if you do the second you kind of zone out of it you're gonna get smacked in the face by reality with like wait are they singing about picking up women like 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 sex workers is that what is that what these high school boys are singing Mm -hmm. about right yes yes they are that is exactly what's happening right now they are they are so comfortably talking about sex that they are talking about going to the part of town where you can get the best women to pay for for a good night of fun I don't want this to be any kind of slander against the songwriting in Greece too, but something that we have learned over many years and pop singles becoming regrets, like, I, I don't know, fancy or blurred lines where we heard it and that became a hit. And then a couple of years later, we went, oh, we made a mistake as a country. I say we as a general thing. I never endorsed those songs personally. But <laughs> I think that... The catchiness isn't there, and therefore it doesn't distract you and become like just a little bob your head, sunny day kind of drive bop. And that's good. I actually love that more. Yeah. I, I I like feel like I'm very insufferable about this movie, and I'm sure people can hear in my voice that there is like a little bit of bite to everything that I say. And it's because I've had to spend my entire life defending the merits of this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's just a movie that brings me so much joy, makes me so happy. And I feel like so many other people could have that joy and that happiness if they were allowed to leave their ego at the door for three seconds and understand that like... It doesn't say anything negative about you if you like a movie like Grease 2. I think so many people get so caught up in not wanting to admit that they like something. Like, I do not believe in guilty pleasures. I don't think that they exist. You like what you like and own what you like. And if you cannot own what you like, then you should unpack why that is. Like, I will very loudly to the ends of the earth talk about how, yes, one of my tattoos is Dracula's Daughter, one of the most maligned universal movies ever made. One of my tattoos is Let the Right One In, largely considered to be an absolute masterpiece. And the biggest tattoo that I have is Fright Night, a gay camp ridiculous vampire movie where somebody is shown as being older by spray painting baby powder to his head. Like, 
You can contain multitudes, my friends. Like, you can like A24 (laughs) as much as you like schlock. You can like something that is beautiful like Spielberg's West Side Story. And you can also like Grease, too. Like, you don't have to choose. I had this idea of Mr. Right, remember? Which is a stupid idea, right? Right. And then all out of nowhere, he shows up. Like some dream or something. Who? Mr. Right. And then the crazy thing is, is that I've seen him twice now. And both times he's wearing these goggles. I don't even know who he is. Mr. Wright. Right. Right. Don't you think that's kind of weird? Not weird weird, but like exciting weird. So what's the problem then? Well, the problem is that maybe he's just not everything I imagined. What if behind those goggles he's just like some ordinary guy? What if he is? BJ, do you have any final thoughts or uh, or have we rapid fire shot them out and now we are just going to take on home then? I like to think that I spent this entire episode treating my talking points like those carnival games where it is a duck with a bullseye on it and you have to shoot all the ducks down. And I feel like I've just been firing off my water gun like rapid fire and all of the ducks are down. I don't know if I intended for all of them to go down as fast and quickly as they did, but they're down now, and I'm sure that we will end recording and this will go publish and I'll be like, and another thing, because that's how I feel about this movie. Whatever, you'll be talking about it for the rest of your life. There will be more time. Yes, and I will never stop talking about it because I think that it's brilliant. I think that it's wonderful. I think that it is so much fun and so smart, and it represents everything that I love, and it's obviously a movie that gets shit on which means i have to i have to come correct and defend it as much as humanly possible and i guess my final word on it is i understand that grease is the word is really cool and it's very bgs and people like it um back to school by the four tops infinitely a better song so (laughs) there i said it and uh don't at me because i'm right different different strokes bj (laughs) all right well the, the the real question here though belongs to you so harmony I promise you I will, my feelings will not be hurt no matter what you choose for this. Our marriage is safe and intact. We don't have to worry about anything. You do not have to sleep on the couch no matter what you say. You'll be fine. Thank you. Grease 2 is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? While I obviously do not love this movie as much as you because I don't know if it's feasible that anyone could. That is an impossibility, my friend. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, similarly to your love for Grease 2 is the $300 million that Grease 1 made. (laughs) So there's no reaching that goal. The fact that I don't have a like pinup tattoo of the girl who is October as a calendar girl on my arm or something is a real testament to who I am as a person and the amount of self-control that I have. I will have a Grease 2 tattoo at some point. I just don't know what it is yet. should be Miss February. I hate Miss February. Okay, (laughs) that's a lie. There is something about this movie I hate. Why in the Calendar Girls song is February not Valentine's Day and is instead President's Day with this horrifying, like, George Washington, like, body quarter thing where his face moves when she shimmies? It is haunting. (laughs) I hate it so much. It's so creepy. Okay, there you go. People waiting for me to hate something about this movie. I hate Miss February. Okay, cool. (laughs) Anyway, back to you and your choice. So 
while I do not love it as much as you, I do still love Grease 2 quite a bit. This is this is a lot more in my wheelhouse. I compared it favorably to Rock and Roll High School and Streets of Fire earlier, and that's where it lies for me. A enjoyable cult classic that I have a deep affection for. It is not one of my favorite films of all time like yours, and that's okay. You know what? I will take it. I'm good with that. Yeah, so there we go. <laughs> Well, friends, thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed me just shrieking with love for the last hour or so. If you'd like to support the show, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Sends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Veloci underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, I'm very excited about this. What? indie band sort of loosely inspired by Grease too are you bringing to the table this week I went real indie with this in that the person I am plugging only has one song out (laughs) so who I'm shouting out this time is Machinery of the Human Heart and their song Jesus on the Telephone this popped up in my algorithm I believe because they're touring with Will Wood and uh, the normal album makes a lot of sense for a a Grease-style tie-in. But because there's not a lot of modern, like, doo-wop and rockabilly-style stuff, I went with more, like, classic theatrical piano music. Uh, BJ listened to it and was a big fan, and I'm very much looking forward to more releases by this group. And if anyone's curious, the playlist that we do have where we keep all of our indie shout-outs all nestled into one big mix on both Tidal and Spotify, I have started to add new releases by our weekly shout-outs into the mix as well. So it's going to continuously get updated. I'm going to add more stuff by Machinery of the Human Heart as they release more stuff that I'm very excited for. And there you go. Amazing. Well, friends, that takes us out on Grease 2. We will see you all next week to close out May Musical Month with a absolute banger of an episode, if I do say so myself. It's a double feature. Mm-hmm. So get ready for that. And friends, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.